This is the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford Business School. Every other week on this podcast, we talk with some person who is doing amazing things with the principles that I teach, or maybe not with the principles that I teach in my class on power and my books on power. And today I am honored to be joined by a very good friend, the famous Dr. Laura Esserman. I met Laura when she was an MD, already had gotten her MD degree from Stanford, was in the MBA program at Stanford, was delivering her first child, was practicing medicine full-time and going to school full-time. One of the characteristics of Laura is that she does not need much sleep and is, of course, a force of nature. Over the years, Laura Esserman has become a leading figure in the transformation of American medicine. She is uh, dedicated and determined to increase the speed at which we learn about new drugs and new treatments that are effective, first in breast cancer and then in other diseases as well. In 2016, Time Magazine named Laura one of the 100 most influential people in the world. In 2016, she won the Arbuckle Award as a GSB, the Outstanding Alum of the Year, one of only four women to win that award over the last 40 years. She has been on the front page of the science section of the New York Times and is, in fact, a very, very influential and determined person. Welcome to the show, Laura. It's nice to see you. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I wanted Laura to be on this show for a very, very specific reason. Many people understand or learn or hear about the principles of power, and they ask themselves, how can I possibly go from where I am to where I need to be to be more influential and to be able to get more stuff done? When I first met Law, she said I was the only class for which she did all the readings, but of course, she refused to use them, uh, <laughs> which was kind of wonderful. But over the years, she, with the help of a personal coach and with the help of me writing a case on her and getting feedback on that case, has made an amazing transition in which she has adjusted her behavior in ways that have made her extraordinarily effective. Just a truly amazing person and an amazing influence in the world of healthcare. And so our conversation today is going to be about how she made that transition and what she learned. So let's begin with exactly that question. What is different about Law 2022 from Law maybe 2004? What have, what have you changed and how have you gone about changing it? Well, I think I've made a lot of changes. Perhaps the most important one was I've adjusted my frame. And I think what made the material so in your class so hard to absorb, Jeff, was that I think when you took a really deep dive at some of the people that you were profiling, on a personal level, some of them were somewhat despicable. And I think that that makes it very hard for people to relate to. You know, and you kind of think, well, gosh, if I'm going to be effective and it comes at the point of personally being not honorable or being willing to lose my moral compass, that I don't want to have any part of it. And I think that actually was a big reaction that many of us had because we talked a lot about it. I mean, the, the readings were fascinating. And yes, the people you took were extremely effective. 
they made big changes. But then even some of the people that you admired, when you learned more about them, you kind of got, oh, God, I'm not willing to be like that to be effective. That's not a reasonable trade-off. But in fact, that's not what you were trying to teach. And I think that was something that I did not appreciate at the time, but I came to appreciate really over, I took about two or three class sessions, painful class sessions, and some work with the coach. And and I challenged you. I said, look, you need to have people who are really trying to use their power for good. And of course, a number of the people you did profile use their power for good, but they weren't necessarily likable people themselves. But it's not really about being likable. It's really about trying to think about what is it that you're trying to accomplish. And I think it was really hard to appreciate that I was really getting in my own way and that many of the things that I was doing, I was just shooting myself in the foot and making it harder for me to accomplish my goals. And it's hard to sometimes have that perspective of yourself. And you like to believe I'm passionate about what I do. I'm really fighting for my patients. I'm trying to change medicine in a good way. And, you know, you're just running headlong into people and thinking they're in your way. That's actually not a very effective strategy. It doesn't really help you be effective. It makes it easy for you to be dismissed. And I didn't appreciate that till I sat through a couple of those classes. And I think the other big motivating factor for me is when I was running the Athena Breast Health Network, this is an organization across the University of California medical campuses unlike the iSpy trial where I kind of handpicked initially the people I wanted to work with, people who I knew were interested in change and who I already had long relationships with and trust, I was working with whoever was there. And I realized that if I didn't have a little better sense of myself, learn to listen, learn to have more give and take and make some changes, I was not going to be effective. And I think a number of people who were coaches for me also pointed out, I think, some fundamental issues that that sometimes people who are big idea people, you express something. And the first thing people think about is, oh my gosh, that can't be done. And when you come up with an idea, you can't even have a discussion about whether it's a good idea or not, because people are trying to cut it down. So I learned a whole bunch of things. One, I learned to listen and let people speak. And without, that's still a big problem for me. I still interrupt people, including myself. But I, you know, that you have to let people speak and get their ideas out. Um, the other thing you have to do is give people a space to, to think differently. If you were someone who likes, you're, you're really good at executing plans. You don't like big ideas without a plan. Or if you're someone who really wants to have all the strategy laid out, you're not going to be a big free thinker. But you can give people the opportunity to say, Imagine for a moment that we can get something, that all these things are true, or that this was true. Imagine if we lived in a world where this wasn't so, and we wanted to accomplish something important or big or something like this. Help me think through which of these two or three ideas are good. What would really resonate with you? Because if it's a good idea, we'll all work together to figure out how to do it. But let's not let the idea that something can't be done be the block to keep us from doing something that we think is really worthwhile. Let's try and figure out what that common ground is. And by doing that, I started with my intentions. And I was able to express what the idea was and invite people into a space that felt safe. So that was the ability to get people behind that idea. I think I 
also, this is something you taught me, Jeff. You said, if you could just be empathetic about the administrators or the other people you're working with, like your patients, you would go a lot farther. And I just didn't understand what you meant. It took me a long time to understand that. And I, you know, you kind of think if anyone disagrees with you, then they're in your way. But that's not true. What I had to do was understand, I was sort of thinking about, I think you said something in the class, imagine you're Laura's boss. What would you think of Laura and how would it be to manage her? And it gave me a lot of insight and actually some empathy. I don't know that I would want to be my boss. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard enough to live with myself. But thinking about the situation of the person or the audience you're addressing and trying to imagine what would make it hard for them to even think about some of the ideas you're proposing and try and get to what would you love to see? Helping people to be a little bit aspirational and say, look, I'd like to help you. This is the vision I have. And it's hard, don't you think? And taking the time to think about it that way was super helpful for me to get my ideas out and to trying to simplify them and make them a little bit less complex. Yeah. Laura, can you expand on that a little bit? You know, so interesting. I just spent a couple hours with our stats team and, you know, they just couldn't figure out. And I said, you know, I think everyone's blocked because you're thinking about how people are going to criticize how you're doing things, or you're thinking ahead about what we can't do. I said, imagine for a second that all these things are true. Let's just not worry about that. Let's focus on trying to solve this problem at hand. What would happen if, and give people permission to really think about it. But people are afraid of being criticized. And, you know, and I, I don't care, I'm like sticks and stones, you know. You know, there's so much, I think, in any political organization, right, about who gets credit and who gets to do this and how do you think. I, actually, I learned this from Jeff when I took his organizational behavior class. This was highly influential as well, is, you know, really putting teams of people together. It's very hard in academic medicine because who's the first author? Who's the last author? Who gets credit? Or, you know, how does the trial look? But at the end of the day, is that helping anybody? Who's that helping? You know, so when you're trying to say, okay, there's three or four different ways to give people credit and to get people involved. But at the forefront is, what are we doing for our patients? They want us to move faster. We need to move faster. You know, they don't have 10 years to wait. You know, maybe we can't move as fast as I'd like to, but we can work harder. And we can take a little bit more risk. No risk, no change. And people would like to have innovation without any risk. Those aren't compatible. And I think one other thing, perhaps, or two other things. One is to think before I speak. Take a beat. Think about it. You know, just like you shouldn't send emails when you're mad. It's harder when you're speaking to someone. Don't allow yourself to react. Shift your body. Look the other way. Mentally count to 10. And decide whether you really want to say what's on the tip of your tongue. And then I I think this last thing about you talk about the Rolodex. And are people willing to do things for you? When I take care of people, I'm a breast cancer surgeon. You know, I try and meet them where they are. I don't tell them they have to do one thing or another. And I try and explain here are the options. And here's the different outcomes that could be associated with it. And I try and be creative and meet them where they are. And they think about their situation. And I try and make a habit of doing special things for them. Like singing a song that they want before surgery. It's about them, right? And trying to make people feel comfortable to do things. And I don't do it because I have to. I do it because I want to. Because that's just my style of doing things. 
And that's true of other things. Do something nice for people. Be thoughtful. Think about what they want. Not because you need them to do a favor in return, but by the way, it is helpful if you need someone in return, if you are nice to them and you help them get what they want, they will help you get what you want. I think that's one of your cardinal rules. And so I think that's made it possible so that when I need to get something done or I need to call on someone, I always go to the mat to do things for people. I just am. I always do that. If they have a patient they want me to talk to or a friend or this, I don't have to do it. But I say, well, look, you know, give my cell phone number or give me their number. I'll call them. And I do it because I want to do it, not because I'm necessarily expecting something in return. But it just so happens that when you need something and people call you, they appreciate someone who will always make that extra effort to do things for them. So I think those are just good principles to live by. And I think it's helped me very much in thinking, you know, I really, I, I'm not finished with how I want to transform medicine. And I'm really trying to think of some of these, you know, working on some of these bigger issues about transforming the way we collect data in medicine. So the idea of transforming medicine so it can be a learning healthcare system, then you, you need a lot of allies. And you need a lot of people to be able to think about the ideas that you have. And you need to get their input and you need to get them on your side because it's not something that any one person can do themselves. Yeah, there are a couple of points that I would emphasize that you made and that I see in your transformation. One is this ability to see things uh, from the other person's point of view, to understand what they need and to understand why, if they oppose you, maybe they have certain objectives uh, that are causing them to oppose you, like, for instance, with the Mama van. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this van that was serving all the poor sections of San Francisco, which, of course, is a great thing, but every patient that you would find who needed to be treated, you would lose money on, and the CFO wasn't happy about that, and you came to see the CFO perspective and you came to see your chair's perspective. Why is a surgeon running a radiology unit? You know, and so you become, I think, way more empathetic and understanding where other people are coming from, which I think helps you a lot negotiate with them. Um, and negotiate with myself. Is this the hill I want to die yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. I think that's important. And I think the second thing you talked about is a conflict. When I first knew you, your way, if somebody opposed you, was to try to bulldoze them. I mean, you were going to go through them. You are, of course, extraordinarily powerful. You're a force of nature. People are terrified of you. And so you were going to meet force with force. And you now, I think you said it nicely, will take a deep breath. You don't send the emails at three in the morning. You count to 10. You ask the question that you just asked. Is this the hill I want to die on? Is there a way I can bring this person to my side without taking them on directly and without fighting with them in a way that basically just makes them fight you even harder. And, and, I th and you don't want to burn bridges either. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you don't have to. And I think the third thing that you've been extraordinarily good at doing, which you haven't talked about yet, but we're about to, is using the press and using publicity to make the change that you want to occur seem inevitable. Because I think you get less opposition when people think, well, this is going to happen sooner or later. I can either stand in front of the train or get on it. And you've been extraordinarily successful in mobilizing 
as I said, you were, you were on the front page of the science section of the New York Times. You were on the cover of the GSB alumni magazine. You've gotten enormous press from the San Francisco Chronicle. And you, you're, I think, very well linked into media in ways that I think have helped you push your agenda forward. Would you talk a little about cultivating those media contacts? So early on, if I had a story, if I was trying to make so I, I, I'll give you a couple of examples. So this whole idea of overdiagnosis and overtreatment, I think what I realized is people learn through stories. People don't understand often intellectual ideas. And no one's really interested in the policy issues. What they're interested in is what am I going to do tomorrow and how does this relate to me? And when they would call me and I'd try and explain to them, and they said, well, we want to talk to a patient. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so intrusive. That's so horrible. Why do you want to talk to a patient? But I realized that if they can't understand the story, and there is no story, and there's nothing for them to relate to, they will never understand the concept. And then I thought, well, who are the storytellers? The storytellers are the journalists. And I've learned that more because my daughter is now a journalist, and I watch how she tells stories. And my son is like, would also say to me, Mom, you think you're winning the argument because you're making this case. That's not true. When you talk about what matters to them and a story that people can relate to, that's how you change minds and hearts. So encouraged to let me say, why am I protecting people out? I learned to ask people who were so grateful about the option to do less. And I would say, you know, more is not better. More is just more. And sometimes more is worse. But people don't understand that unless there's a story with it. You know, when someone's had a bilateral mastectomy, it turns out they really didn't need it. And they're like crushed by the a complication or because they feel disfigured or that that's a complication of their daily life. And it didn't need to happen because people were so afraid. And when you have panic and fear, you can't think about options. So if you don't tell those stories, then people don't even understand it's a problem. So I realized that the storytellers needed to carry that forward. And, you know, when you talk to journalists, even the profile that was done to me in the New York Times, and I, when I was asked whether I would be willing to have that profile, that's a risky thing to agree to because you have zero control. When you talk to a journalist... They're going to write their story. You don't control it. You don't get to write it for them. They're going to write their own narrative. And, you know, one of the things that I will almost always talk to all journalists, but I read what they write first. I need to know that they're going to be intellectually honest, that they're going to be reasonably fair. You can't control what they do. But you can also say, well, here are the concepts and the main points that I want to get across. You know, if you're willing to tell that story, I will speak with you. I will find patience. I will work with that. And they will ask, well, why are you willing to talk to me? I said, because I know that people will listen to you. They're not really going to listen to me. Laura, this has been a really interesting discussion. I think the listeners to the podcast would really love to know what you're now doing. What, what's number one on your agenda? It is really, it's, you know, it's about how do you really bring personalized medicine to trials? How do you bring personalized medicine to people? How do you transform our thinking so that we are making learning and improving a routine of care. That's really the essence of what I'm trying to accomplish. Thank you for that. By the way, Laura is an extraordinary storyteller. She's also an extraordinary singer. 
One of the things she's done is she writes her own musical theater, using other people's music, but putting her own words on. She's done Audacity 1, 2, and 3, I believe, mm-hmm. and maybe doing Audacity 4. And uh, the other thing, of course, Laura is famous for is uh, singing her patients to sleep, and she takes requests. It is, it's, by the way, quite a good singer. So thank you, Laura, for being on the Pfeffer on Power podcast. This is the Pfeffer on Power podcast Accelerating Your Career, where every other week we talk about how to accelerate your career through using principles of power and influence. So if you're interested in the topics that we're talking about, please subscribe to this podcast. You should follow me and can follow me on jeffreypfeffer.com. That's jeffrey, P-F-E-F-F-E-R.com. You can read my book, Seven Rules of Power, and you can follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Today, we were privileged to talk with Laura Esserman about her transformation to become a much more effective version of herself, not change her ideals, not change her values, not change her morals, but do things strategically in terms of storytelling, in terms of her empathy with her opponents, in terms of how she dealt with conflict in a way to to become one of the most influential people in the world. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jeff.